Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, September 17th, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, anything that you see or hear on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. This is for informational purposes only. I am not a registered financial advisor. I cannot give you personal financial advice. Please do your own due diligence before you make any investments and you should take the responsibility. Uh, they're your decisions. Uh, it's up to you to do the proper research. Okay, um, just a little housekeeping note. So I just wanna, we have a lot of new people coming on all the time. And one of the things I'm gonna say is, uh, one of the things I'm not a big fan of, I leave the comments open. I even let people say a lot of stuff that is kind of, you know, off the wall or sometimes people insult, whatever. Uh, but what I don't like is if you make a comment and then you're asked to back it up, you have to back it up. Like if you come on and just do a drive-by comment based on something that's said in the video that you don't agree with, that's fine. But then if we're going to have a dialogue or if another commenter ask you a question and you don't answer it or you try to change the subject, you're going to get spammed. We don't do that here. There's tens of millions of, of channels out there that you can go to and give your insight to. Uh, but if you come here and you comment and somebody has a question or challenges you on your comment, uh, you're required to answer. Um, again, this is not... Um, you know, I'm not your weak father or your professor at your university. I really don't, for the most part, you know, this is done for, uh, for informational purposes and as a loss leader for my newsletter. Let's just be honest. That's what this is. Okay. And I'm not going to put up with nonsense from people that I don't even know. Uh, there's a lot of people that have been here for years. I know who they are. They're respectful. They make insightful comments. Sometimes we don't agree many times, and that's good. That's what adults shouldn't 100% agree. But if you come on here and you say, well, I don't agree with this, or this is my view, and then somebody challenges you on it and you move the goalpost or change the subject because you're either unable or don't want to uh, deal with that, you're just going to get spammed. That's it. Um, if you want to call my mom names, if you want to say that I'm an idiot or whatever, I let, those I let that stuff stand. Uh, that is one thing. Another thing is if you lie, if you say that somebody said something that they didn't say or they're doing, that's not going to be allowed either. Okay. Like I said, this is not your personal uh, place to vent your psychosis or your mental problems. Uh, this is serious stuff we're talking about. It involves tremendous amounts of money. People are making, trying to make decisions. We're trying to have a dialogue here. So if you don't want to participate in a mature and stand up way, then you're just going to get spammed. All right, let's move on. So it's apparent to me now, I've been talking about this off and on for a couple of weeks, that tankers appear to be entering a super cycle. Um, this is a channel that uh, TK Tankers has on YouTube that I saw. It's pretty good. They make occasional um, videos. This is their head of research there. Now, obviously, this is made by a tanker company, so I'm sure that they are skewed to look at the positive um, points and maybe not look at all the negative points. But if you watch the video, this is a pretty good video. It's like seven or eight minutes long. Uh, link in the show notes. Um, and they make a lot of good points and 
kind of back up the facts like we've been talking about. So what has happened here, and this is kind of educational for the education of speculators. Before the conflict in Ukraine got going and all the sanctions were put on, tanker market was kind of struggling, okay, for the most part. Why? Because, you know, I had bought into the tanker market based on net asset values being very cheap, but the day rates, the rates weren't there. And so the thesis was, okay, there were going to be changes to the emission standards, IMO 2020 and some other things. The fact that the tanker fleet was aging and that their replacement cycle wasn't happening uh, quickly. And so, but nothing was really happening. And so what has happened is that because of the sanction regime and the discombobulation of the trade uh, flows of energy specific to oil and refined products, it's totally changed the dynamic for the tanker industry. And so what it's, what it's done is, you know, as I've said before, in normal times, and efficiency is the main thing. So you're going to try to find the most uh, efficient transportation to deliver products to your customers. And so when oil was being sent from Russia to Europe, um, there was short journeys on Aframax tankers and things like that. And now that, you know, things are changing now because of the sanctions and additional sanctions that are supposedly going to come on, um, basically, where Europe's not going to take any uh, crude from, from Russia after, I believe, December 5th. So what we're so that means they have to go out and find other sources of crude that are farther away so this increases the travel time for the same amount of crude on possibly bigger ships not aframaxes but suez maxes vlccs so then that just ripples through the entire uh this this is not a economic um result this is a political situation that was imposed onto a market by politicians that has caused a rift and has caused an opportunity, right? So you you basically changing the whole dynamic of the world's uh, liquid energy transportation system, which means that fuels are going to be transported over further distances. So you have the same amount of ships having to transport the same amount of fuel over longer distances. So obviously this makes rates go up, okay? Because um, for obvious reasons. I mean, I don't think I need to explain this. So it's a supply demand thing, but this was imposed by government. You see what I'm saying? This wasn't a natural outcome of, you know, well, eventually the scrapping caught up with the lack of new builds and it's causing this dynamic. So what I'm saying is a super cycle is a super cycle because this is going to last as long as these um, artificial constraints are placed on this particular uh, industry or market. Um, you're not going to see, there's not going to be like the ability for the tanker companies to rush out and start building new tankers. Now, if it stays, if rates stay high enough, long enough, eventually they will, but there's other dynamics involved, right? Like even if you wanted to order new tankers, the shipyards are so packed with container vessel orders from that previous cycle. So like we already had the cycle in container ships. Uh, rates are coming down quite a bit now, but during the uh, COOF or COVID pandemic, um, and the shipping constraints that were involved there. And so a lot of new, new orders were put in. And so there's not capacity in the shipyards to expand, you know, to build a lot of new tankers. So um, I think that, you know, it's becoming more and more obvious that, you know, these rates are going to stick. 
if you go and look at the various reports of the various uh, tanker companies, I don't think they're saying super cycle yet, but they are very positive in their remarks. And it's all around this discombobulation that was caused by the political apparatus uh, putting sanctions on and then thereby causing these second order effects. And this is where this is the essence of speculating. Okay, looking for these areas where um, the government inserts itself, for example, and causes this rift or causes these un, uh, non-economic forces to cause economic uh, opportunity. I mean, that's kind of a weird way of saying it, but you get what I'm saying, right? So um, this isn't only just in tankers. This is the whole, this is the whole idea around the heads we win, tails we win more thesis, right? Around energy and why we're so bullish over the next um, decade, not only for fossil fuels, but also for rebuildables. Why? Because there's not enough copper. There's not enough metals. So the, the, the ideas that they're being put forward by government, it's again, inserting itself into a market and trying to impose its will because it has a monopoly on force. It can cause things to happen that may not be economic. And therefore, the second and third order issues around supply of material aren't even looked at. You know, we talked about that before. If you believe what the, that uh, assistant professor at Queensland University said during that presentation that I put out like a, a, a last week or the week before, if you watched it, that when he sat down with officials from the EU, they weren't aware when they were discussing the renewable goals that they were putting forth, that when he mentioned the constraints based on the lack of material or the line of sight to increasing, you know, the supply of the necessary minerals and materials, they had no clue. Now, if that is, that's typical though. And so that's the other head of the coin. Heads we win, tails we win more. Uh, we're constraining the ability of companies and others to increase the, the supply of fossil fuels. And on the other side of the coin, we are trying to move to these new, this transition, if you will, as, as it's called, or zero, these, these basically very murky, muddy goals that have been put out, but with no line of sight about where you get the materials to do that. So um, this is the essence of being a speculator, okay? And um, as opposed to an investor, right? We're not doing discounted cash flow models. I talked about that with the uh, interview with Trader Ferg. You know, a lot of people come at me or they'll send me messages. Uh, say, uh, what do you think about the, you know, uh, five-year uh, plan at uh, $50 uranium, what so-and-so company? Well, I, I don't do that. I'm a, this is speculation, okay? I'm not going to try to analyze companies that have no revenues or sales, okay? You're speculating. You're saying, because X is happening, Y is going to be the result, okay? And then you assign a probability to that, and then you take the position. So, uh, we're, this is what's happening in tankers. This is what's going to happen in commodities. This is why energy, I think, is going to uh, outperform this decade, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there's going to be volatility, extreme volatility. So I'm going to put a link to this. Uh, it's pretty good. I suggest, you know, if you're interested in these various tanker companies, they have started to move. Um, but I don't think the move is over. If this is a one-shot deal for like, you know, a season, uh, or a six-month thing, then it's not worth playing. But I think that as long as these artificial constraints are put on the uh, liquid fuels market by Europe and its embargoes and things like that, that, like I said, 
the the need for these materials, these fuels are still out there. And so, you know, you're just going to have longer trips for the same amount of fuel. That's really all it's going to happen. So if you kick, if Europe says we're not going to take any more liquid fuels from Russia, um, then they have to get it from the Middle East or they have to get it from the United States Gulf of Mexico or offshore Guyana or offshore West Africa or wherever. And um, these are longer trips. And if you don't have the ships, you can't increase the amount of ships, uh, then you're going to have higher rates for a period, longer period of time. So, you know, we've seen this already, like in the oil market, what happened with a lot of the companies, we can expect maybe the same thing to happen here. Um, at some point, you know, the cash flows over time will stay at a high level, debt gets paid down, and then you're going to start seeing returns to shareholders. So um, I think as long as these policies stay in place, uh, um, sanctions or whatever you want to call them, what have you, uh, this is going to be an opportunity. And so here was a Zero Hedge article, um, the energy markets, next crisis, oil tanker shortages, uh, just a few notes from this article. This is written by a, a woman named uh, Arena Slav. Um, she does a lot of good work at oilprice.com. She also has a sub stack you might want to take a look at. She does a lot of work, uh, good work in uh, the energy markets, um, kind of finding out these things and, and really doing good reporting. So I encourage you to uh, check her out if you, if you get the chance. Um, it says here, uh, okay, in the new era of energy shortages, one aspect of the situation has tended to get overlooked, the transport of energy. Demand for tankers has been on the rise since the European Union slapped sanctions on Russia in the spring. And this trend is only going to intensify in the coming months as the EU embargo on Russian oil and fuels enters into effect. Few tankers have been built in the past few years. And since this is not something the industry can reverse overnight, supply will probably remain tight pushing the cost of transporting fuels, oil and fuels higher. Indeed, in early August, Bloomberg again reported that the global tanker market was seeing the strongest demand in more than two decades. Citing data from Clarkson Research Services, the report said the average profit for an oil product tanker in the two weeks to August 8th had jumped to 400,000, the highest price since 1997. So, I mean, there's different rates for different types of ships, like especially in the product market. There's such a um, there's a big demand now for distillates because the inventories are way low, like right around bouncing around the lower end of the five year um, of the five year averages. So there's a big pull for distillates. That's diesel, jet fuel, things like that. Um, and so clean tankers, which are your medium range and long range clean tankers that carry refined products. There's a big demand for that right now. And there's specific companies that uh, we have positions in, in the portfolio that uh, are benefiting from this in the um, actionable intelligence alert newsletter. So links to these articles in the show notes down below. So you can read them for yourself. Uh, again, I encourage you to do that. Um, this was actually on zero hedge, uh, got picked up uh, from oilprice.com. So, you know, I think this is going to be something to take a look at. You know, if you remember, I talked about what happened with um, when I first started the newsletter, I had a company called Euroseas in there. I think I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And the same thing was bought on the fact that, you know, the value of the ships was only selling at like half, half 50% discount to the net asset value. And so that was the reasoning behind it. And there was really no catalyst. You know, the earnings were there. They would bounce around cash flow, but nothing really 
a big deal. So it wasn't really moving. It was just kind of sitting there. And so I finally just said, this thing's not doing what I thought it was going to do. And I ended up selling it. And I sold it, you know, maybe six months before the pandemic, something like this. And during the pandemic, that stock went up 20% or 20 times um, rather rapidly. I mean, it was uh, carries uh, Euroseas is basically container ships, smaller container ships that did shuttling services between ports, not your, not your big, huge, uh, like open ocean, but uh, they had like a niche, but uh, the thing went up 20 times. So when you have these outside forces coming in, sometimes, you know, you can get an unexpected windfall and that's kind of what's happening i think in the tanker market and i think it's going to let like i said the, the the thing that's driving it the 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 policies that are artificially being put onto the tanker market by these embargoes by these sanctions um i don't see the rates coming down unless those are pulled off or you get this huge new build of tankers to increase the supply of tankers so i don't see either one of those happening so that suggests to me that uh, these higher rates will be around for a while. So this was an interesting uh, list uh, from one of the oil trading firms talking about the bullish bearish points related to crude prices. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but um, some of them are curious, like the uh, like bullish, the lost Russian output, um, Oil embargo starts 5 December uh, for waterborne crude and 5 February for waterborne products. So you see right now it's like 2.5 million barrels per day. Uh, so again, that's that's going to be beneficial for tankers also, just to go back to the tanker situation, because if you're not going to get, if the EU is not going to get its oil and refined products, 2.5 million barrels from Russia, which is they're right next door to, then they have to get it from somewhere else around the world. And so you have the situation where crude has to go from Russia to China or India where it's refined. And then these refined products are sent onto Europe or, and then all this discombobulation has to get worked through. So, um, Spare, lack of spare capacity, very low global inventories suggest $110 a barrel is a fair price and OPEC producing as much as they can. Um, we already talked about this that, uh, and they mentioned it here, OPEC is still 1.1 million barrels below quota. Um, it says here only Saudi and UAE has spare capacity, but I'm not sure if that's true. Um, I'm not sure how much if the Saudis really do have a lot of spare capacity, you know, they had that symbolic 100,000 barrel a day cut um, the other, uh, the last meeting. And I think that there is a, there is a view inside OPEC and with the Saudis because of MBS's desire to spend $500 billion creating a new, you know, Saudi Arabia, whatever that vision's called, I can't remember. That suggests that uh, they're going to be interested in having a, floor on oil prices. Uh, some have suggested $90 a barrel. We'll see, but uh, that will involve a lot of political wrangling too. I mean, the, I just don't see the U.S. having the influence it had before, just from what we've seen over the past six months to a year with the relationship with um, the Saudis, with this current administration. Um, it mentions here like Nigeria, Libya, Venezuela, Angola, all struggling seriously with their output. Um, cost inflation, average oil and gas project now 13% more expensive than last year. 
Uh, fuel switching, this is in Europe. Uh, you could be large volumes of oil demand from gas to oil switching in Europe because of the lack of uh, gas. Um, we'll see about that diesel generators or burning and gas turbines switching to liquid fuels. Some have suggested fuel switching could be in the neighborhood of 700 to 800,000 barrels per day, but uh, we don't know. Uh, demand recovery from COVID in China. Um, we just don't know. This is like kind of an unknown. We don't know that after the party Congress in October, where Xi will get uh, his third term, whether the COVID situation will get rescinded in China. Um, but that does represent quite a bit of demand that can come back online. Um, so that's, you know, we, we still have suppressed demand around the world because of the uh, COVID situation. Um, mentions the diesel issue that we talked about, distillate issue are low. Um, so, and then uh, potential refill of the SPR after 2033. Then there's bearish things. You know, this is a major thing that people need to be, which we've talked about, large risk of a global recession. Um, the Iran deal, I don't think is a bearish factor anymore. I don't think it's going to happen. You know, Iran is obviously moving towards the uh, SCO. I think they are going to enter the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and really move towards, uh, you know, that alliance with China and Russia. You know, we had reports that the Iranians were supplying some of their advanced drones to, um, uh, to the Russians, which if you were following the Azerbaijan-Armenia conflict, even the first flare-up, not the current one, but the previous one, uh, the Iranian drones on the Azerbaijani side played a tremendous role in really devastating the Armenian forces. So um, we're seeing more of that them coming together. Um, U.S. could end sanctions on Venezuela, but, uh, you know, if you actually looked, it was kind of curious about Venezuela. Their economy is actually, because of the increase in price for oil, I did see that, um, you know, Chevron held on to their assets there, and the U.S. is kind of not like looking the other way as people go go back in there, some European companies. But you would need, because it's so dilapidated, their industry, I think it would take years and billions of dollars of investment. Yes, I think that oil companies could go in pretty quickly and stabilize things, but to get increased production in any time frame, uh, that's it's going to be years and it's going to be billions of dollars. And I'm not sure people are ready to do that. Um, U.S. could continue SPR release, but that's not infinite. Um, Shale production could increase, but uh, I'll have a subsequent slide where I don't think that that's going to happen. So anyways, uh, here, here, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. You know, you just got to look at these bearish and bullish points. I think more to the bullish side, uh, maybe I'm biased because we have a bias towards higher energy prices over the decade. But, um, you know, there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of plates in the air. But, um, you know, I think the two biggest things is just the lack of investment. I'm talking about from a longer term perspective. And then this whole thing around um, uh, the global potential for a global, severe global recession, which is a possibility. So uh, this is Honest Al-Haji. I kind of like listening to him, but sometimes he flip-flops. But uh, I don't know, this particular um, comment's pretty pretty on, on point. 
says, are you, I put the title of the slide from one crisis to another. And he says, are you sure that the EU members will move from one crisis to another? Yes, here's why. They want oil, gas, and coal companies to invest, maintain, and expand production, but will take all the investment money from them so they cannot, they cannot maintain. They cannot expand in production, basically, is what he's saying. So what he's referencing is, is the EU proposing a $25 billion windfall tax on fossil fuel producers to help offset the energy crisis. So again, um, things come down to people respond to incentives and disincentives. And so I don't think if you, if you are getting a windfall, you may have a political view that because of the artificial nature of the increase in, in energy prices, uh, because of the conflict in Ukraine, uh, you may think in your mind that uh, that's artificial profits and windfall profits to the oil companies or energy companies. Um, and so we need to take back some of that. What I would tell you, though, is, is that things don't happen in a vacuum. So you may think that's fair and you may think that that's the equitable thing to do. But I will tell you that the companies have to rely in a commodity business over a 10 year period. There may be only a period of 18 months to two years. Some, most, in some cases, depending on the commodity, where a um, company, commodity producer has windfall profits, windfall earnings, and they need those periods to compensate for the periods where they are barely making money or breaking even or just slightly making money so that they can do additional investment and increase um increase the finding of new reserves because these are extractive industries. And so it's required that you, you get the, um, you take a, a, a portion of your cash flow from these excessive periods and reinvest them. And so they're not going to do that. Um, if you tax them, what you're going to end up getting long story short on this is you're going to get less production and less availability of energy because no one is going to respond to an incentive by producing more so that they can give it up to the state. It's just not going to happen. Um, now, if the state takes the companies over and makes them do it, then it even gets stupider. I mean, we're seeing right now, like there's uh, some energy distri distribution companies in Germany, like Uniper and something like this, German government's going to bail them out. So they're virtually going to take them over. And so now you're going to start inserting politics into it because once the government gets, takes over for the good, you know, this is, this is the situation that the government's, in Europe and the EU caused. They didn't have to do these sanctions. They chose to do them. Whether the argument is correct, if it was the correct thing to do or whatever, that's another argument. But they did choose to shut off their main supplier of energy and sanction their main supplier of energy. And so, uh, as I've argued before, I, th I think this was done without probably, probably, properly thinking through the possible consequences. And now the worst case consequences are now happening. And so they're going to, like I said before, come back with additional measures and band-aids to try to fix the previous bad decision. So uh, we'll see, but uh, no one is going to uh, increase production or make new investments, uh, at least from a, uh, publicly traded companies or private companies uh, if they're going to have the profits snatched away from them. As a matter of fact, I own a stock. I'll tell you about it. It's uh, Vermilion Energy. Uh, they have an awesome natural gas fields off of Ireland. And they were supplying into the, um, you know, gas system in the U UK. It's currently, if you look at it, depending on how you analyze it, maybe a 70% free cash flow yield. Um, and now that the there's going to be a 33% uh, 
at windfall tax, I believe, in the UK, and it's going to reduce that to like 40% free cash. flow. that's still pretty good, but, you know, um, I'm probably going to sell the stock because I don't want to be involved with companies that are being, you know, having their having their earnings stolen from them by the government. So uh, we'll see. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, this is not going to be conducive to increased supply. And so we talked about this earlier, and here's the slide. Uh, U.S. shale cannot bail out Europe. The U.S. shale industry has warned it cannot rescue Europe with increased oil and gas supplies this winter amid fears that a plunge in Russian exports will send crude prices soaring back above $100 a barrel. Even though oil markets have softened in recent weeks, the respite could end when an EU oil embargo on Russian sales comes into full effect later this year. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen this week warned the embargo, quote, could cause a spike in oil prices, unquote. Asked about the prospect of a big production increase from the U.S. shale industry, Scott Sheffield, CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, said, quote, no, I don't see it coming, unquote. He goes on to say, we're not adding rigs, and I don't see anyone else adding rigs who runs one of the biggest oil producers in the U.S. Yes, because we've talked about this before. Um, you take a company like Pioneer, and they said this, if you listen to their management calls, not only them, but others, they could go crazy and drill out all their top tier stuff in, in about six years. But why do that? Okay, there's no incentive to do that. So instead, if they just maintain production or slightly increase it, do maintenance capital, and then the directive they've gotten from ownership of the company, which are the shareholders, is to return capital because they spent so much money and time losing money and having negative cash flow for a decade during the shale boom that now it's like, okay, well, I don't have to do anything. My shareholders are fine. I get paid. I get my stock options for doing one thing, maintaining production and returning cash to shareholders. That's what they want. So no one's going to go crazy, drill, baby, drill. And they've said this. They're not the only ones. A lot of other folks are saying this. There's no incentive to do that. You just husband your, 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 your good drilling locations. And then you can, instead of having six years of inventory, you have 10 or 12 years of inventory. And then you're doing what shareholders want anyways. Again, you're responding to incentives. The board has incentivized the management to do what? Maintain production or slightly increase it, but don't go crazy and return money to shareholders. So you're doing what you're, what your, your board wants you to do. And you're responding to the necessary incentives that have been put into you. Your stock options, your, your bonuses are going to be based on that, not drill baby drill for the sake of drilling. So this is, uh, again, uh, these are, this is stuff that uh, is out there, information people need to look at. Another reason why, you know, I think we're going to have a decade-long uh, energy bull market. So this is pretty positive. You know, we're big on offshore uh, oil services. We think, uh, I think that this is going to be tremendous. It's really under the radar screen. A lot of these stocks have still not, some of them have moved, some of them have not, but I pretty much reviewed, listened to, read the transcripts of uh, probably a bunch. I don't even know dozens of the oil field services companies. And I'm seeing a common denominator. Um, business is increasing, spending's increasing, Backlog is increasing. Forward guidance looks good. Money's coming into there. So you're, you're saying to yourself, well, you just said that they're not expanding. Yes, they are expanding, but not at the rate that you would see in previous cycles. And the other side of the equation is, is that the services market is 
quite a bit smaller. I mean, drastically smaller than it ever was before. And so even with the reduced spending that is happening, we are seeing spending increases in the high single digit, low double digit, even or low teens. Even if that happens, it's still going to result in a tremendous um, revival and bull market in the remaining oil field services players. So here's an example. Offshore drilling rates could rise to $500,000 a day, say executives. Rental rates for offshore oil and gas rigs rise to half a million in the coming months. That's per day. Um, daily costs to hire a rig, known as day rate, have already more than doubled from two years ago. Um, and some top end rates reaching close to 400000 And we've seen that with some of the, uh, I mean, you can't even get a drill ship right now uh, from, from the calls I was looking at, a modern drill ship. Um, they're pretty much 100% sold out and a lot of the modern semi-submersibles are. So that's what happens, right? As utilization rates for the rigs go, you know, from the depressed part of like a couple of years ago, we saw like in the 60% range. Once you get above like 80% and start heading towards 90%, that's when day rates start moving higher. And that's what's happening. Um, major driller Transocean expects the day rate rising even further from the present levels and to hit the 500,000 mark. It's a quote from their CFO, it's inevitable if the macro environment stays intact. Yes, of course, it'd be incumbent upon, you know, if oil prices go to 30 or $40 in a worldwide depression or lower, then yes, drilling will pull back, but I'm not sure that's going to happen. He thinks this is going to happen in about 10 months, but uh, Sea Drill, which is one of their rivals, said that uh, they could see some of these uh, milestones pass by the end of the year this year. So, um Typically, what I've seen in the past uh, for these oil field services, bull markets, um, especially offshore markets, because the long lead times and how complex and the, the jobs are and how you have to prepare all the equipment and put orders in. I mean, these things can, these, these bull markets, these recoveries in the offshore drilling market can be three, five, seven years long. So... I think that's what's going to happen. I think we're we're um, you know we're heading in that direction. I mean, there's a blurb here. It says C Drill, which had to restructure its debts under Chapter 11 bankruptcy, may be able to pay dividends again in the not so distant future. So this is how quickly things are recovering, and I think a lot of people are not aware of this, and that's why you know I don't have to. Um, like selling Vermilion, I can go into some of these companies, right? Because they're not going to, they're, you know, second tier uh, contractors or whatever to these, or first tier, second tier contractors to these majors. Um, I'm not getting clipped on their earnings uh, or getting taxed. These guys are not going to see that kind of windfall profits taxes. At least I hope not, but uh, I've never even heard that suggested. So, um, I think there's an opportunity here. Like I said before, we should be quite a bit higher just based on the current energy prices that we're seeing as far as oil field services based on pre previous cycles. But I think a lot, like again, the most investors, the money people are just now starting to relook at EMP producers because of the cash flows. These things really haven't moved yet, yet the businesses are improving at a rapid pace. So I think that um, that represents an opportunity. You may have to wait a wait a while, but some companies have already made some pretty decent moves and I think they can move quite a bit higher. So I wouldn't get caught sleeping on this um, $500,000 a day. I think at the bottom of the market, 
I saw rates at like for some of these drill ships at like $275,000 a day and they weren't even breaking even. And we're seeing issues where like um, we saw why I think is sustainable. You saw like some companies like some of the large companies like Equinor and some of these other large uh, oil and gas producers offshore, they were actually paying the um, fees that could be like 30, 40, $50 million just to get a drill ship out of like cold storage, they would pay all the reactivation fees, plus, which would be, like I said, 20, 30, 40, $50 million, and then sign up for $400,000, $425,000 a day for two to three year campaign, drilling campaign with a particular vessel. So that is happening. Um, like I said, I would take a look at it if you're interested, because these things really haven't moved like they can. And I suggest to you that uh, we're going to see uh, um, these things really take off. Uh, which again, incumbent upon, you know, energy prices staying at this level or moving higher. So I wanted to highlight this. I'm not going to, um, this is kind of a clown world thing, but this kind of, I'm not gonna give my political views that much anymore. You know, most people think, know what I think about the United States government and so-called democracy or the Western, you know, neoliberal democracies. I mean, this is an example, but this is the, this is the White House um, climate advisor, Gina McCarthy. I mean, this is not somebody I would want to spend any time with. Just voice is horrible. It's just a horrible, not my kind of person. But anyways, what she's advocating for in this um, video, which I'll put a link to it. You can watch it yourself and maybe your view is different than mine. But, um, you know, she's suggesting that the social media companies, um, I guess she's not paying close attention to recent court cases where the courts are saying that they social media companies can't censor people but she's causing basically uh for big tech to censor individuals criticizing renewable energy you know that's what i do i criticize it because it's not a viable um energy energy source for uh the majority of situations in a in an industrial technological world it's just not um, you're not going to power the world with renewable energy. The materials don't exist. The intermittency problem is not solved. We can, we've, we've talked about this before, but these people are pushing on. And, you know, look, there are sincere people that believe that the climate is going to dest possibly destroy the earth. They view renewable energy as a uh, way to fix that. They're misguided in my view, or they're not educated on it. That's a group, that's a constituency. There's a constituency that, um, that you know, the renewable thing has been subsidized now for over 10, 15 years. So there is a industry now. It has lobbying groups. Billions of dollars are spent on it. It's not gonna go away, okay? I'm getting ready to go to this conference in California for solar and it's going, it's sold out. It's like since the Inflation Reduction Act was signed, it's happy days are here again. So I'll be curious to see what the, what, what everybody's thinking there, but you know, it goes back to, you're not going to, I'm not going to be able to, I would never go there and say, well, have you thought about the fact that um, we, there's no insufficient copper and aluminum and all these things to do all this? I mean, it's not even going to penetrate because you're not going to convince somebody to change their mind if not changing their livelihoods based on not changing their mind. So um, there's people that have political agendas like this person and like the administration, for constituencies around that. And there's just grifters and rentiers out there too. So 
Um, this is going to be here. That's why we're back to heads. We win, tails, we win more. But I wanted to highlight this because this is the trend in the free world. Okay? We're going to censor views and ideas we don't like or inconsistent with what the party line is. And quite frankly, folks, you know, I reported this last week, you know, John Podesta, a, a, a Clintonite scumbag, in my opinion, that's what he is. I mean, guess who's the new renewal? Who's the czar that they brought on board to the administration? He's going to, you know, be the czar for this renewable energy inflation reduction act. So of course he's going to channel the monies. I mean, Come on, guys. I mean, if you can't see this, it's on both sides. Don't don't at me about, well, our, you know, this is what people like to do. Well, our Republicans or Trump or this is both sides. The entire thing is broken, rotted. It's a, the whole thing's a grift. The whole federal government, the whole appropriation process, the things they got their fingers in. So you get one party in there. They take care of their constituents and supporters and donors. And it's the same thing when the other outfit gets in there. Or even now, they're so much of a uniparty, they just do little trade-offs and feed off each other. Okay, so there's no reason we should be spending $800 billion a year on the defense budget. You know, when we have cities in the US that don't have clean water. I mean, seriously. But, you know, again, I'm not going to go down that road. It is what it is. I'm not going to change it. You're not going to change it. Uh, this is what happens in the later stages of empires. They decline. Um, and this is, you know, if you think you're free, you're not. This is, there are people in government that want to censor you because you have a different view. Uh, that's not freedom of speech because they have an agenda and their agenda is so good and virtuous that it cannot be stopped and it will not be stopped. And if you don't get on board, this is, this is exactly what, you know, radical, um, you know, totalitarian governments do so you can listen to it for yourself maybe you have a different view uh that's my view so uh i'll put a link to this article too so first concrete poured in australia's first one gigawatt wind farm one gigawatt capacity needs three hundred and sixty thousand tons of concrete the hinkley point c nuclear reactor used fifty thousand tons for 3.2 gigawatts and three times the capacity factor. So, so the wind farm needs 20 times as much concrete per unit of energy as nuclear. This is why I'm a big advocate of nuclear power. Um, it stays, you know, when you talk about capacity factor, you're talking about the amount of time that the asset is running, okay? That it's consistent with when it can run, it's running. So um, with nuclear, you're at, you know, sometimes high 80s, 90% of the time it's up and running when it's able to run. And wind farms, it can be anywhere from the low 20% up to mid 30%, okay? And so the view is, is like all these inputs, the, the gigawatt, you're only getting one gigawatts for this much concrete and you're getting, you know, remember this wind farm is only going to last 20 years, maybe less. I mean, if you drive around and really take a hard look at some of these wind farms and you're driving around, you'll see like they paint them white, you know, to, for reflecting the heat and stuff or I mean, even though it still just get hot in there, but uh, you'll see like around the, where the nacelle is, you'll see oil coming down. I mean, these things are rotating machinery under tremendous stresses. They don't last, you know, forever. And they're under tremendous stress. They have a lot of maintenance that's required to keep them running. They have a lot of breakdowns. But, you know, so you're going to end up, 
you know, I talked about this before going through these repowering cycles where a thing didn't even make it, plant didn't even make it to its full first life cycle of 20 years. And they were already tearing them down and building new ones that were bigger and better. And I've been involved in some of those projects. And so a, a nuclear power plant, we're seeing, you know, initial designs are 50, 60 years. And now we're seeing extensions on plants that were built in the 70s or early 80s to extend for another 30 or 40 years. And so you're just churning out at that 90% capacity factor, you know, tr trillions of terawatts of power over time. And you don't have to rebuild the thing every, you know, 15 or 20 years. Uh, the maintenance, you know, it just produces such a corner, a, a plethora, a, a huge amount of energy relative to its footprint, relative to the energy inputs that were required to build the facility. And that's what I'm talking about. You know, the reason why we're wealthy is because we have um, an excess of energy that allows us to do other things. We're not in a subsistence type economy of where we're, you know, reliant on the sun and photosynthesis to create crops for us to consume and fodder like hay and alfalfa for our draft animals that we use to plow. You know, we use tractors, we use industrial scale agriculture, um, you know, fossil fuels, nuclear uh, creates tremendous uh, more energy than's put in. And it's a, it's a um, overabundance, which allows for us to do other things. Um, that's why you didn't, see, like I said before, you didn't see a lot of science, you didn't see a lot of progress during the middle ages. And before that, just because society didn't have excess energy, which can be, you know, excess wealth to do other things. So um, this is, again, another story around energy return on energy invested. Um, again, I'm not going to get involved in the politics. If people want to build these things, they're going to do it regardless of what I say. Heads we win, tails we win more. We just need to look at it and understand it. And where are the opportunities? So uh, this is um, in the EU. This was a tweet uh, from Shy Girl. She does a lot of commodity uh, uh, analysis. Aluminum by year end. This, this year, 50% of EU smelting capacity offline due to high energy prices. That's for aluminum. Uh, wind turbine needs three tons of aluminum. New generation solar panels, two times the amount of this metal versus older gens. A single EV on average requires 250 kilograms of this metal. So, you know, the ability, so again, you have demand, a certain amount of demand for aluminum around the world, and you're taking off half the supply smelting capacity in Europe. Now, a lot of the smelting capacity is in Norway and places like Iceland and stuff because they use geothermal in Iceland. They use hydropower in Norway. But on the continent, you know, they're not going to have the power to continue. Uh, the prices will be too high You're using natural gas, right, uh, in these furnaces and stuff. So you're not going to be able to do that. And so the supply goes down, which, you know, causes prices to go up everywhere else because we're notwithstanding the fact that we may be heading for a recession, the supply, the demand's not going to drop by 50%. So this is some, like I said, this is some of the knock-on effects that people did not anticipate when they put these embargoes on and put these sanctions on. So here's Robert Friedland. Robert Friedland is a mining entrepreneur who has been very successful. He's a billionaire. Ivanhoe Mines, you may be familiar with it. Um, so what's he saying? He's big. His big thing he's been talking about for the last several years 
um, has been copper and the lack of it. So this is, an, this is the kind of fit metrics here or information that you need to pay attention to. Pay attention to this tweet because it came from this report that was from S&P that you can download if you go to this um, here. Uh, I'll put a I'll, well, I'll put a link to it so you can just click on it, but you have to register and it's a report. But it says here, he, he just makes this highlight, which I think is very important in this part of the tales we win more. In human history, we have mined 700 million metric tons of copper. To meet renewable energy demands, we need to do it all over again, but in 22 years. So in 10,000 years of recorded history of mankind, we have mined 700 million metric tons. We need to do that again, what took us 10,000 years to do, we need to do that again in the next 22 years. It's not going to happen, folks. The metal does not exist in those quantities. And even if it did, we do not have the capacity to ramp up to do that. And so the renewable demands, the policies are not going to go away, at least in the West. We're going to push forward with these. We're going to subsidize. We're going to push, push, push. The metal is not there. So what do you think is going to happen to metal prices? This is another, this is one of the reasons why I'm so bullish. Okay. Notwithstanding, again, short-term economic declines because of recessions, in the end, these things are going to be in tremendous demand. We're not going to get off this policy. Okay. It's too entrenched now. It's going to happen. And they're going to try to do it. And they policymakers are not aware of numbers like this, okay? It seems to be that. They just look at the policy and, and, and think about what their incentive is. They're not going to be here, many of these people, in 10 or 15 years in their same roles in government or as a policymaker. It's going to be somebody else's problem. So they go out the hero, hey, you know, it looked good when we were there, and they sail off into the sunset with all their money and their prestige, and it's somebody else's problem. That's what you need to look at. That's how, why people will ask me, why is this happening? Don't they see it? It doesn't matter if they see it. They don't care. It's the policy they're going to do. For whatever reason you want to uh, uh, ascribe to it, personal wealth, grifting, they actually believe it. It doesn't matter. Heads, we win. Tails, you win more. You're not going to mine 700 million metric tons of metal in the next 22 years. It's just not going to happen, of, of, of copper. It's not going to happen. Uh, I guess you should never say never, uh, but I just don't see the new fines, the amount of investment that is needed. Um, it's just not there. The head grades are going down. I'm not sure that amount of copper even exists out there. So um, it's like that, going back to that presentation that we talked about earlier in this in this uh, video, um, even to do the first generation of transition to 100% renewables would be 800. We, we don't, we could do that once, maybe. That would be consuming all of the available metal that we know about that's out there. So uh, I just don't see it. It's not going to happen. Now, yes, you can increase recycling. And we, I've seen that during some of these projects, but you can't recycle 100%. And for the numbers that they're talking about, it's just not going to happen. So Again, tails we win, heads we win more, but understanding why we came to that view, understanding the, the, these large numbers, understanding how mining works, understanding how the life cycle of a project works. And if you understand these things, you know that this is going to be very difficult, if not impossible. 
So just some positive news for us out here in uranium world, uh, four more reactors announced by China. Um, again, you just, I just throw this in here, no particular, you know, uh, just more positive news we see every week on the supply demand fundamentals. I think it was interesting that um, when President Xi went to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting in Tashkent last week, before that he went to Kazakhstan. And I think that, you know, Kazakhstan is a very large producer of uranium, as you well know. And then he went to Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is an emerging producer uh, of uranium. Uh, I think it's in the top 10. Uh, and it's increasing its uh, production. I mean, again, when I talk about Uzbekistan, everybody's sleeping on it. It's like nothing's affecting them. They're in Central Asia. They're in the middle of this whole um, Shanghai cooperation trade paths uh, through that whole little crescent that swings down from, you know, Turkey through the Central Asia, Middle East and into China um, and into Asia. Uh, you know, their economy continues to grow. There's construction cranes everywhere. They're sitting pretty good. Now, it's concerning because you see all these recent flare-ups now, you know, Tajikistan fighting with Kyrgyzstan, but yet their leaders are at this cooperation thing. Um, Kazakhstan kind of shunning Russia and moving towards China. There's a lot of intrigues going on and a lot of news, you know, Armenia, Azerbaijan breaking out. So, um, we'll have to see how that all goes, but Uzbekistan, you know, is, uh, you know, uh, sitting pretty good. So anyways, more positive news for, uh, uranium longer term. Again, I think that, uh, you know, it's slowly, but surely it's not, you know, we're going to, uh, exceed the old highs eventually when that happens, I don't know, but, uh, I'm positive on uranium still, and I continue to be. So I wanted to point this out, uh, you know, we talked about it last week, but just wanted to came across this, uh, this um, uh, slide or this uh, illustration. New PM, that's Liz Trust, tells regulators to kickstart UK shale. And can it be bigger than the North Sea? There was an article, um, but this is the uh, illustration. It says, geologists say the Bolin shale, which is to the left here, contains more than 1300 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. If just 10% of this can be exploited, a conservative estimate, it is enough to meet the UK's needs for 47 years. Meanwhile, there's up to 10 times as much again offshore, plus more in other onshore basins. So again, you know, high prices, you know, circumstances cause people to change their views. We'll see if this goes through high prices, um, causing a change in view maybe. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to this in these areas. And so I think it would be, you know, they're talking like, if you read the article, I think it was like 2026, they would see the first gas flow. So that's still four years from now, right? So we'll see. I will say that, uh, you know, the UK, the UK under Thatcher, um, they really opened up the North Sea when she, when she got in power. And it was a tremendous benefit to the uh, United Kingdom as far as the oil and gas wealth that was created really was part of that story of how the UK recovered in that, uh, you know, their post 70s malaise. So this could be possibly a another, you know, windfall. But again, you know, uh, we'll see if it's exploitable geologically, the services there don't exist. Popula a lot of people there are against this because of the earthquakes. Of course, there's a lot of misinformation around these things, what to do with the wastewater, all these things can be solved. Uh, and when you have such high prices, 
and such um, pressure on an economy, it has a tendency to change people's views. So we'll see how this develops because it could be a possible, like I said, there are a couple companies that are Australian listed that have properties here. I'm not willing to like even talk about them right now because I want to see if this is actually going to happen, um, you know, but we'll see. Okay, I wanted to talk about this. This is the kind of stuff I really like. I don't know if these numbers are correct, but it's pretty much going to illustrate what I'm talking about. So it says, you know, hydrogen is an energy. I put this up here. Hydrogen is an energy carrier, not a source of energy. Okay, it's not like you go out and just like drill for hydrogen. Okay, hydrogen is an energy carrier. So here's what, what we say, you know, to get the ultimate goal, like you hear people talking about hydrogen to heat homes or as a replacement for natural gas or to power cars or to power gas turbines in a combined cycle gas turbine plant for electricity production. How we'll do that is, is we'll make electricity with a wind farm, 100 watts, We'll go through an electrolyzer. What's the electrolyzer do? Well, it takes water and it separates the molecules using the electricity produced by the wind turbine. And the result is you get high, you separate the hydrogen and oxygen molecules. You have oxygen as a uh, waste product, which is not bad. And then you have hydrogen. Okay, but the problem is that process costs energy. And so now you, this is what the problem is that people don't understand because they don't understand entropy or thermodynamics or these different things. And so you think, okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, that, that sounds great, you know? Okay, well, now you're, because of this process, you're down to 70 watts. Okay, now you have to liquefy this thing to transport it, right? You have to go through a liquefaction process. So that is concert, that consumes energy. So now you're down to 45 watts, okay? from the original. So you're less than half of the original uh, gross power production of electricity. So then you have to ship it and then you have to gasify it. So that's 40 watts. So now you're down to 40 watts. Okay. And then, you know, you start, you know, distributing it to uh, heat transportation. So, you know, you're down to a third of what you were before. Now the argument can be made, this is just rough. I don't know if these calculations are, but this gives you an idea of what actually happens from a conceptual view. Anytime you change states, anytime that, you know, you gasify or liquefy or you transport, you lose energy because it costs energy to do that, okay? And there's going to be inevitable losses, okay? That's thermodynamics, that's entropy. I mean, even in electricity, transporting a long distance, you have... This is another reason why, you know, building these huge transmission lines, you have losses, you have heat losses, you have hysteresis losses, you have losses in the transformers, you have, now they're not, you know, each one is not uh, detrimental, but taken together, that they, they, they are, they, they can be um, quite a bit. And so if you just look at like the losses in the transformer, which are heat losses, um, you say, well, they could be like one or 2% or whatever it ends up being. It's like, well, that's not a big deal. But now I have to ship this over the lines for 500 miles or whatever. And you have more losses. So all this stuff needs to be taken into account when you talk about doing these things. And so when they are put into a thousand word, word article in the Wall Street Journal or somebody in two and a half minutes on a segment on a news program tells you the benefit of this, it's impossible to go through and, and discuss all of these things. And so people don't understand this. So I, like I said, I don't know if these exact numbers are what the losses are, but conceptually, this is correct, that you do have losses. And so what was the point, you know, if you were trying to get, you know, 
electricity out of a combined cycle, why not just take it directly from the wind turbine? You know, you would have less losses. So um, this is the question. Does it make commercial sense? Because you can't just do things at a loss or you can't do things at an energy return on energy invested at like three to one or two to one or four to one. The, you, you will go backwards as far as a society, as far as the complexity of a society. You know, the complexity of a society is inversely proportional or is, pro is proportional to how much energy input you can put into that particular uh, economic system. And if you have less energy input or the ability to put less energy in because you've made poor choices around energy return on energy invested, you're going to have, again, smaller economy, less complex economy, uh, it's just, just how it is. So uh, when you are given these solutions or proposals, take these things into account, okay? And ask these questions of, in your mind, what are the true, what's, what's the starting point and what's the end point and does it make sense? Because, in a, like I said, in a blurb for a minute and a half on a TV news program, you can say, well, you know, this is, we can take clean energy from, and we can make this other clean energy. And it just makes sense. And everybody goes, wow, that's a great idea. Because the way it's presented, it is a good idea. It, who would be against it? But when you start getting into the nitty gritty, when you start getting into the engineering, when you start getting into how does this really work in real life, uh, all kinds of questions arise. So I wanted to point that out. Like I said, I'm not going to bag on this stuff. They're still going to try to do this stuff. And we just need to understand it so that we understand where the opportunities are going to be created by these poor decisions. That's the whole basis of speculation. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. I appreciate the support. Um, appreciate the um, channel continues to grow. People seem to like this. We'll keep doing it. And uh, if you would, if you like this, uh, subscribe. Um, especially the, the guys that are listening to it on the podcast, can whatever podcast um, vehicle that you're using to listen to this, whether it's Spotify, iTunes, I don't know, even know all the ones it's on, you know, if there's a mechanism for liking this and sharing it, we, uh, I would definitely appreciate it because we're trying to grow the channel and try to, trying to, by the end of the year, get this thing over 10,000 uh, subscribers. So that would be a big uh, milestone for this channel. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one.